again. I heard Bertram say it feels um, weird being up here. It does feel weird being up here. It's like we've never had a stage. We used the stage last night for the panelists, and we just um, thought it would be easier on the team to leave it up and put it away after the service. So we're, we're not trying to get ideas above our station. <laughs> boom, boom. Um, amen. Praise God. It's wonderful to hear of just the work that the Lord is doing among us. Um, now, okay, we'll do that next time. I think that was what I understood. It's okay. Sorry. I'm having another conversation at the same time. Very rude of me. So, um, afternoon. My name's Ephraim, for those who don't know me. I'm one of the leaders here. And we've been going through a series on stewardship and what does biblical stewardship look like? What is stewardship? And why are we stewards? Um, and what are we to be stewarding? And so we are um, coming to the conclusion of that today, the final, fourth and final episode. And we've had a focus on money up to this point. And we've spent three weeks talking about money, and it feels like, actually, we could sp spend more time talking about it because there's so much more to say about it. You know, we haven't talked about how we as Christians can be effective in saving and investing, um, how we should approach the issues of debt, and all of these things that are just realities for us in our lives as individuals, um, especially here in London. And so... Um, I don't make any apologies for the time that we spent speaking about money. And in fact, I'm really thankful because I feel that the Lord has really been doing a work in my own heart concerning it, um, let alone among us. And I'm encouraged to see how that will outwork itself. And so there'll be some uh, allusion to money again today. If you're visiting, um, praise God, it's good to have you with us. And I'm glad that you're able to kind of hear somewhat of God's perspective on that which is often worshipped within our society um, as it relates to money. Our goal, our quest, our aim, our vision is to be a, recognizing that we're not, a healthy church that's equipped to disciple and faithful on mission. And through, as it says in Romans 12 too, God's word, the Bible being um, absorbed into our hearts and minds and into our lives, we become transformed um, more and more into Christ's likeness. And that is the ultimate picture of help, health, equipping, and faithfulness. So with that, and knowing that we, you know, healthy individuals as Christians make for a healthy church um, as we relate to one another healthily and relate to the Lord healthily, um, the issue of what we do with our money and also with our time and our talents are all very important as it relates to stewardship. We acknowledge that steward, to be a steward is to be someone who is entrusted with another's property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. So we're we're entrusted with a responsibility that we are to manage, to use to the owner's best interest as opposed to our own. And so even as it relates to our giving and finance, you know, we recognize that 
God doesn't need our giving. That, that would be just, just the first part of that sentence, God needs. That, that would be a contradiction in terms. God could never be God if he needed anything or anyone. He is self-existent. And so God doesn't need our giving, but the reality is that we as individuals need to give. We need it as an antidote, as a, as a, as a vaccination, an inoculation against the idolatry of materialism, especially in our culture in which we live, where things are idolized. So we're going we're gonna to move on from that um, as far as it relates to to money, and we're going to give more time considering our talents and our time. But even as we move on, I know that some of us who've been here over the past few weeks have kind of had a reevaluation and refocused and said, you know what, there are certain things that I need to get in hand. I recognize that the scripture tells us in Galatians 6 that we're supposed to be given consistently, systematically, and frequently to the local church, and um, you know, you've, you've asked how to do that. Um, we didn't have them last week, so I didn't mention it, but we have them available um, if you would like it today, and that's a gift aid form and stand in order form, where you're able to make a commitment freely, without obligation, or without a sense of pressure as to what you would sow um, into this ministry as a partner in this work together. There are some people who go out and evangelize on a Saturday morning, and they're out there on the streets. There are people who do barley There are people who are doing marriage ministry and ministry to the children and so on. And you may not be involved in any of those things for various circumstances, but you may be able to partner in all and any of those things through giving and sowing. And so um, at the end of the service, you can see Karen and grab um, one of those um, forms and maybe if I get an opportunity, I'll explain a bit more about them afterwards. So the question I put before you today, as we get ready to look at Matthew chapter 25, what on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? What on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? You can just hear that phrase ringing out in all different ways, right? What on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? We're going to be looking at Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, um, as we consider what, what could we be doing? And furthermore, what should we be doing? What do we have to do? Matthew 25, 14 to 30. I'll read the text and then we'll pray. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground. And hid his master's money. 
Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have, here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slowful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God is good. Father, we thank you for your word. Aye. Lord, somebody said once that your word is shallow enough for a baby to swim in it and yet deep enough to drown an elephant. And Lord, as we stand here looking at your word, we see the reality of this in this parable. This is a practical story of everyday life, of spiritual importance and meaning. And we're looking at this, Lord, and you're speaking realities that we can relate to. I pray, Lord, that we would get the spiritual significance of this. And that, Lord, we would have ears not only to hear it, but hearts to embrace it and apply it to our lives. <laughs> have your way among us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name. You know, sometimes you're just reading the Bible and you get a moment of realization. Even just reading that just now, something just dawned on me. I'm just hoping that I remember, I, I can't even note it down, but I just hope that I remember to convey it at the right and appropriate time. This thing is deep, you know. <laughs> Listen, I have, to, I have to say this, yeah? If you are somebody who engages with the Bible and you find it a chore and you find it dry and you find it boring and just irrelevant, I would say, what Bible are you reading? Maybe you need to get an easier translation to read. 
because I don't know how anyone can spend any time whatsoever engaging with the Word of God and at least not have moments of just mind-blowing exhilaration. <laughs> Listen, you know some... Uh, uh, <laughs> we're here. All right, so we're in the text. <laughs> I'm telling you, God is good. And we're seeing Jesus share this parable. And I want to focus on the point of the parable. There's so much to unpack here. We just won't have the time. But I want to focus on the point of the parable. And I think that there are a couple of things that we're kind of being confronted with here. Some of which are, are obvious and others are not. I think there's a sense in which we're being challenged. What do we have? What are we doing with it whilst we have the opportunity? What do we have and what are we doing with it whilst we have the opportunity? The reality is that the Lord has granted to everyone something. Even to the person who chooses to ignore him. The person who chooses to do life their own way and suggest that there is no God. Everyone has received something from God. On a very basic level, we've received life. No one can bring back the dead. I'm sure there are many people, you know, we may love to see brought back from the dead in our life and times. Certain people might say, you know what, I'd love to see Martin Luther King Jr., or I'd love to see Michael Jackson come back and do that, finish that last tour he was supposed to do so that I can go. But there is no one apart from God who can give life to the dead. So we understand that life comes from God and it has been entrusted to us. And yet God has given us more. And in this we see that the, the the, the parable here represents that to us. That, that everyone has been granted something. Now, you might look at yourself and for various reasons feel as though you don't really have much to do much with. You might feel as though, you know what, I don't, I don't really... I look at my life and not only do I feel like I, I don't have much. I'm not worth much. Just me personally. You know, we can be our own worst critics. We see our flaws the clearest, even if we're not willing to admit it. Yet still, God has given everyone life and something more. Now, in this parable, we see the Lord using the term talents. And I don't know if it's derived by intention, 
But the term talent, as we understand it, we normally understand to be like a, a skill or ability or a, you know, something that someone can do. We say talent. Um, and yet, from the parable's point of view, it is speaking of money. We get that notion from the sense of investment. But even though it's speaking about money when it uses the term talent, which was a form of Jewish currency in that era, it is a metaphor or representing anything of value in a person's life. So it can speak of money, but also skills, ability, knowledge, experience, even spiritual gifting. So this is what's being spoken of, and we see that each person, the three main recipients, received talents from God according to what? According to their own ability. So they were given according to what they would be responsible with, what they could work with. So one was given five talents, another was given two talents, the other was given one. I mean, right there, even hearing Jesus break it down like that, that each were given different amounts according to their own ability by the choice of the master relieves us of a lot of pressure. Because one of the biggest challenges of our generation is that of com competition. You know, we look at people's Insta feed and we kind of want to have that life. Hashtag goals. We, you know, we, we look at people's um, lifestyles on, on the TV and we feel like we, we want to be like that. And at the very least, we aspire to it. If not, we feel like we're going to compete with it, even with our own peers. Oh, you know, I was in class with such and such and now they're married and they've got a, a, a career in, in government and... I don't even know what I'm doing with my life. And all of a sudden, your peers become your point of reference. But the parable tells us that the way that God deals with people is that he knows us. And he knows what we ought to have. And he knows what we need. And when we need it. When we ought to have it. And so... Let's not focus on what other people have and what we don't have. But let's focus on what we've been given and aim to be faithful with that. And so that kind of sense of competition and insecurity or superiority gets eliminated because it's by God's choosing who is who and what they have. So we see that in the parable, they're all given different amounts according to their ability. And the first two, they went and they increased on what they were given. Wonderful. They were commended. And what was it that the Lord said to them? Well done, you good and successful servant. Is that what he said? No. Verse 21. Well done, you good and faithful servant. You see, the goal isn't even to be a success, contrary to what you hear a lot of people preach. The goal in life isn't to be a success. Look at me. Look how much I've achieved. Look how wonderful I am. The goal is to be faithful to the master. And this is what they were commended for. 
Now, you look at the situation and the reality is that word faithful could have been replaced with the word successful and often people do and we, we kind of take it as normal. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. The kingdom of God doesn't think or behave in the same way that just the kingdom of the world does. And so the goal is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Well done, you good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of the master. And so we recognize that part of the motivation for the faithful stewards, the faithful servants, was the pleasure or joy of the master. And so they were seeking the joy of the master, which is what was the result of their faithfulness, bringing joy to the master. It's easy to translate that into Christian terms. If Jesus is the master, then we exist for his joy. Our purpose is to bring him pleasure. Now imagine, you know, you, you kind of get the scenario at Christmas and um, there's this kind of wrestling sometimes. What do you get for the person who has everything? Like, what do you give them? They've got everything already. Like, and you might even feel, you know, you married for a few years and you're just kind of like, you know, I feel like everything that I could have got for my spouse, I'm like, I don't know where to go from there. And yet you still want to bring them pleasure. You still want to bring them joy. That's your motivation. And so you consider and you think and you strategize and do whatever it is that you need to do in order to try and bring them that pleasure, bring them that joy. Now, we're talking about the almighty eternal God. To think that you can bring God pleasure that you can bring him joy through your faithfulness. For me, that's, that's it's amazing that us with our flaws and with our failings and with our shortcomings and all that we're not, yet still we're able to bring God joy, bring him pleasure. That God would delight in us, in you. That's something worth pursuing. That's something that money can't buy. And yet, that was the response to the first two individuals. But the, the third person was someone who, he had a, a very dismal end. His response to the master can be summed up in one word. Entitlement. You see, the last servant, he was riddled and he was corrupted with a sense of entitlement. 
And we recognize that God is timeless, right? And his word is timeless. Like regardless of what people say, God's word is relevant and pertinent to every generation. People say, oh yeah, well, you know, that was written, written thousands of years ago and it needs updating it because times have changed. And we're like, hold on, this is the word of an eternal God. God who is beyond time. Beyond, like, I would say he's outside of time, and yet somebody corrected me theologically. Mm, it's a bit tricky statement to say that God is outside of time because he is in time as much as he's outside of time. He's beyond time. His word is an expression of himself. And just as God doesn't change, neither does his word. His word is eternal. The book of Job tells us God's word is eternal, settled in the heavens. It's a done deal. So there will be no revisions and updates from God's part. God has said what he said. And in that, we recognize that when we look at that word as being the main point of the parable, we realize how deeply that applies to us today. Some have said there is never a time like the present day where entitlement has been such an issue. People can be afflicted by this sense of entitlement. And let me clarify what I mean by entitlement because it's not necessarily obvious. But entitlement will be considered the expectation of getting that which is deserved. I deserve to have because whatever reason, dot, dot, dot. Or not losing that which is your right. It is my right. I expect that I should be able to or I should have. In fact, um, there was a, a talk on YouTube that went viral um, by a guy called Simon Sinek, I think is, if, if I'm pronouncing his, his name right, um, about millennials and the challenge that millennials have in the workplace and in life and so on. And again, he said, you know, one of the fundamental issues is this sense of entitlement that millennials, those born within the kind of turn of the millennium frame, I think it's like 95 to whatever. That millennials are individuals who will be in the workplace and feel that success is supposed to be handed them on a plate just because they are. Not because of hard work, not because of merit, but just because they are. And I would say, you know what? As much as that's an accurate observation, it's not limited just to millennials. You know, we have people in every walk of life, for every different reason, having a sense of entitlement, expectation, of being deserving of. And so it could be, well, you know what? I was abused by my um, 
one of my parents or a family member. And so I ought to be let off the expectation of having to get an education. I should just be given a path in life. Or it might be, you know, because of you're black or you're female or you're poor and you live in a deprived community or you come from a rich family and you have a, a, a title and, and, and you're an, an heir to an, an estate. or like It doesn't matter what walk of life people are in. This is something that affects everyone to some extent in some way. And this was the issue as far as that last servant was concerned. Now you might be thinking, you know what, I hear that Pastor E and I agree with what you're saying about entitlement, but I don't see the connection. Like it sounds like a bit of a stretch. All right, work with me. What did he say to the master? I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So basically he's saying, I knew you to be someone who benefits of others. Of the sweat and of the hard work and the toil of others, you just benefit from that. You don't do no work. You ain't out here sowing seeds in them, them bitter cold February days. It's cold today, isn't it? Cheese and bread. And I'm standing up here, I feel like I need to take this off, but it's going to be a drama with all this. You, didn't, you weren't out there reaping the harvest and bundling the crops and getting calluses on your hands and dry mouth in the heat of the day. Like you're a lazy guy just exploiting everyone else. That's the sentiment being communicated here. So when he turned around and he says, I was afraid, what was he afraid of? You tell me, what was he afraid of? He was afraid of working. He was afraid of getting exploited. And you know sometimes when you're trying to confront someone, you're trying to say something, but you don't say everything that you really want to say. You know what I mean? you got something to say. You kind of start saying it, but you don't say it all. So I was afraid. What was you afraid of? Well, you know. <laughs> I was afraid. I was afraid of getting exploited. Man's just going to come and rinse me out here. Take me for a joke. Take my hard work and just profit off it and do his own thing and get rich. And, and so I took what you had and I hid it in the ground. I just buried it. I mean, I kept it safe. You know, like pirates used to bury their treasure. X marks the spot. So they can come back to it afterwards because no banks. I buried it. It was in the ground, as if credit would, was due for that. And then he has the audacity to say, here, have what is yours. Have what is yours, as if anything else that could have come from that, actually, the master didn't deserve it. This is what's yours. This is what you gave me, and this is what I'm giving back to you. This is what's yours. And so the master answers him, you're wicked. Wicked, bad man, and lazy, slowful. We see the word, we don't use that word. He's saying he's lazy. You are bad man and lazy. 
Imagine somebody have to say that about you. That's not a nice feeling. My dad always used to say to me at those times when I saw him in my life growing up, you know what, there's no excuse for laziness. And it kind of lived with me. You're wicked and lazy. You knew and noticed. This is a question, you know. And so you can just hear the tone. You knew that I reap where I have not sown. Really? And gather where I scattered no seed. That's what you knew about me. So obviously, the servant had the wrong perspective. He had the wrong view of the master. How many of us have that view of God? Especially when it comes to our lives and our talents. How many of us really, I mean, if we're honest, recognize that we have that view of God? We see what we have in our lives and we kind of can fall into conforming to this general attitude that people have towards their lives and the things of personal value. I can't let this waste by not personally profiting from it. Like this has to benefit me. This has to be towards some kind of gain. What am I doing this for? And so people have that, they ask themselves that question. Actually, I'm doing this course, and why am I even doing this course? How is this course even going to benefit me? You know what, furthermore, I'm going to switch courses. I'm in this job, and where is this job really going? Like, what's the point? Actually, I can't see any scope for development. I can't see any room for promotion. I'm just kind of being limited and relegated to dog's body work when I know that I've got so much more that I can do and gain and benefit as a result. And so, you know what? Even if it's just for being able to benefit from better experience, I want to benefit from something more than this. And so there's this sense of, I have gain to be had, to be profited. And I can't let this opportunity, I can't let this skill, I can't let this talent, I can't let this time that I have be wasted on something that's not going to personally benefit me. And so as a result, we can then often sideline the things of God, sideline actually giving God any glory and any, and any pleasure and benefiting his kingdom in any way from who we are and what we do with ourselves because we are our focus and we are the ones who are supposed to gain and we are the ones who are supposed to benefit. That is a sense of entitlement as it relates to God. You see, and don't get me wrong, I'm not even saying that entitlement is something that is a, is a curse word and it should never be used. Because there are certain times in our lives when we are entitled to things and we ought to stand up for our rights and we ought to declare our, what we're entitled to. You know, we see the Apostle Paul do that in the book of Acts. When they want to kind of mistreat him and he's, hold on a minute, <laughs> I'm a Roman citizen, you know. What? I'm entitled to be treated better than this and, and, and experience the due course of justice. Don't think that you can just handle me anyway. So there's certain times as believers when we need to 
be declaring our rights and that which we're entitled to. But here's the, here's the, here's the filter. Here's, here's the condition to the glory of God. Some of you might have seen the um, YouTube video that's been going around of a, a brother called David Lynn preaching in Aldershot. And he was out there preaching and he was getting it like those guys were on Saturday. He was getting it hard. They were cursing, literally throwing stuff at him, trying to mash up his belongings as he's out there with his stand. He's out there preaching. They call the police on him. The police come and he's like, what? Is it against the law to, to open the Bible and speak from the Bible in this country? Is, is it against, the, do, I, do I not have freedom of speech to be able to actually speak openly concerning my religious convictions? He said, furthermore, these people are trying to um, press charges against me. I want to um, take issue with them. I want you to arrest them for um, disrupting my religious liberty. The police didn't know what to do with themselves. They were just like, oh, you know what, we need to call someone to come and um, deal with this. And then the person, and they actually just stand there and leave him. And he's, he's like, you know what, whilst you're sorting yourself out, he says to the police, I'm going to keep preaching. <laughs> My man declared his rights. There are certain things that we're entitled to that we shouldn't back down and be shy of, claiming to the glory of God. <clears throat> but when it comes to God, we don't have any room or right for entitlement. None of us, regardless of our experience, regardless of our history, regardless of our reasons, none of us are entitled to anything before God, apart from judgment. See, even the worst things that have happened to us in our lives that might cause us to feel the victim and cause us to feel as though we're owed. Because, you know, victim mentality and entitlement, they're like twins. They tend to generally go together. And in some way or another, we often find ourselves in a place where, whether through experience or perception, we see ourselves as the victim and then want to come before God as if that entitles us to favor. It entitles us to blessing. It entitles us to, like, God, you owe me because look at what I've been through. And then Jesus says, look at my son. I mean, look at what he's been through. And look at what he went through for no fault of his own. As the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the eternal Son of God, look, look at what he went through. Furthermore, for you. Because as much as we may be victims, genuinely so, we've also victimized. I remember one time when I was at um, school and... You know, there was a couple times in my life as a young person when I really felt bad for hurting someone else. One of them, you know, at school you kind of get into banter and then banter becomes cussing and it's like, you know, those days it was your mum and whatever. And so, and there was, there was this one guy and he, he was really kind of trying it with me and I was fast with my mouth and I actually buried this, this guy and like, Friends were crying, holding their belly. Da, 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 da. 
And at the end of it, I didn't even feel like the victor. Yeah, I, I just silenced this idiot. No, I felt like, you know what? That was actually really just not good. That was like, because I took it, you know when you just take it too far? It wasn't good. And there was another time when I remember this other guy went to fight me. It's probably the only fight, uh, yeah, probably the only fight I ever had in my secondary school days. And it, it was quite short-lived. And this guy wanted to fight me, and I, I went, no, no, I just, anyway. And so, <laughs> it wasn't just a case of going to the right school. Um, but I remember the situation, and I thought to myself, this guy's not serious. Like, I, wasn't, I wasn't a fighter. I wasn't somebody who was always brawling and getting into scraps and, like, punching and taking blows and, like, I was somewhat of a coward, to be fair. But this guy was trying it with me, and I remember thinking, I can take this brother, you know. And so I didn't really feel any kind of sense of, like, being, like, threatened or whatever, intimidated. I just felt like, this guy's not serious. And he kept going, in, and I just said to him, no, nah, leave it, just look, go away, I don't want to, leave it. And then, and then in the end, he came for me, and then we had a fight, and then at the end of it, I just thought to myself, why did I even fight him? Because I just knew. And it wasn't like I left him bloodied and nose broken and teeth coming out and her. No, it wasn't that, but even the, the scuffle that we had, the altercation that we had, just left me feeling just sad, like, you know what, I shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. And the reality is, I just almost lost my point and it came back to me. That as much as we have been victimized, we've victimized others. And we can all think about those times in our lives when we have overstepped with someone else and we've hurt someone in some way. And for that one infraction, we are deserving of God's judgment. We are deserving of God's wrath. Because God is perfect in all his ways. Impeccable. And so, what we're entitled to is judgment. Let alone the gifts that God gives, that he's bestowed us with. We're reminded again of 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Like, what do you have that you did not receive to feel a sense of entitlement? Well, this belongs to me, and I need to profit from this, and I benefit from this. This was the mistake of the servant with the one talent. He's like, oh, you know, you, you reap where you haven't sown. and like, What? But hold on, where did you get the talent from in the first place? Did I not sow the talent into your hand? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so again, we're challenged. Actually, if we're going to have, have a healthy view of, view of God, we have to recognize that what we have comes from him. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. There's no gray areas. There's no variance. There's no every good and perfect gift, not just the spiritual ones. You're good with maths. 
you're good at design, you're good at art, you're good at whatever. That comes from God. Love this verse in 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The way that God works in everybody's life is varied. And some people seem like they got more talents than they deserve. And, and we're just like, and then we fight that covetousness and that, that red eye, that jealousy, that envy, like, uh, look at them, who do they think they are? And they're just trying to serve God with what they've got. And yet, we see in this, it's blessed that the use of our gifts, the use of our talents is towards God's glory, but directed to one another. And so it's not even just, well, I'm going to use it to God's glory in ways that benefit me. But I'm going to use it to God's glory in ways that benefit others. challenge right there and so in this we see that the steward he had the wrong view of God he had a sense of entitlement one of the other reasons we know that he had a wrong view of God and this is the thing that struck me it's interesting when you look at the parable yeah he says the 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 the, the, the last servant he kind of has this sense that, oh, the master is going to benefit from my efforts. But I want us to go back a moment and just look at the parable. Yeah? I want us to look at verse 28. So in response, the master says to the, to, to the steward, to the people, take the talent from him with the one and give it to him who has the ten talents. So the one who had five talents, he made five talents more and he brought them to the master. But in this verse, who has the talents? It's not a trick question. Does the master have the talents? What does he say? He says, take the one talent from the bad mind servant and give it to the one who has ten. The one who has... So, the five talents that the master originally gave him, and then he traded and he made five more, the master allowed him to keep them all. Even though he brought them to the master for his pleasure and for his profit, what did the master do? The master allowed him to keep them all. And gave him more on top of that. And, and this, again, gets to the heart of our problem, our issue with God and, and God benefiting. Because we feel as though God's going to leave us short. Or, or, or we're going to get just kind of palmed off. When God don't need none of our talents. He don't need nothing that we... God, the fact that God even allows us is a mystery. It's a wonder. And yet, God causes his people to be blessed by the fruit 
of our labors. People think it's a chore doing evangelism. And then it's like you hear Paul, guys, them stand up and be like, you know what, it's, it's truly the greatest adventure. You go out there and your heart's pounding, blah, blah, blah. But the way you feel afterwards, when you see God work and you've just been able to, listen, God is no one's debtor. God ain't in debt to anyone. And for us to give ourselves to be spent upon God will never leave us bankrupt. I said it before and I say it again. Even the local council subsidized their, their employees. TFL subsidized their employees' travel. I mean, we think that God's going to leave us short when he don't need anything that we have anyway. See, even though it wasn't the expectation, the faithful servants never had that sense of entitlement. They, they weren't like, well, you know what, if I bring this to God, then he's going to let me keep it. They were like, no, master, here's, here's yours. This is what's yours. And the master in his generosity allowed him to keep it. And so, let's not get it twisted. Let's not be mistaken into thinking that Actually, for us to use our time, to use our ability for the pleasure and purpose of God's kingdom will leave us in a place where we're in deficit or we're not gaining. or we're... Now, you know, there are times when we will just be grafting and we won't experience the fruit of our labor like quickly and immediately. And it might feel long and it might feel drawn out. But having no sense of entitlement, it guards our hearts against... Becoming demotivated. Do not grow weary in doing well. For in due season, some of us are trying to force ripe the fruit. You know, force ripe fruit don't taste good. I used to work in, one of my first jobs was in Sainsbury's. Actually, it was on Sainsbury's Lehigh Road. And I remember the bananas. One time... I, I was on a break and I said I could take a banana and I, said, yeah, and I was just like, and you know when it hurt your belly? <laughs> I still ate it. I can't lie. My eyes, my eyes were bigger than my belly. And um, they had the, the, the bananas in the fridge and I, and I remember saying like, why do they keep the bananas in the fridge anyway? They come from a tropical country. And it was like, it's not just to preserve them, but it's to help them in their riping process. I, didn't, I never understood that. I still don't. I don't even know if the person was talking sense, to be honest. But forced ripe fruit don't taste good. You've got to let things mature in, in due time. You've got to let things mature in due season, including the fruit of your labors. And so don't be discouraged when you, you, you're giving yourself to the Lord and for his pleasure and you don't see immediate results. So many people in history, Bible history, that we can think about. Look at Noah. Noah, building this ark for all of these animals. Just him and his family, the ones that enter into the ark. They'd be like, well, remind me not to come to you on seven steps to effective evangelism. 
just knowing his family. And yet, later on, years later, where they're reading the testimony and are encouraged and are convicted and are drawn to the Lord through the testimony. Abraham, even though he didn't see that which he hoped for, he remained steadfast in faith. And so, our trust in seeing the fruit is not in uh, how hard we've worked and how much we deserve it, but our trust is in the goodness of God. And that never changes. God is faithful, God is good, and he's true to his word. And so, you might be kind of thinking, well, does that mean that I have to become an evangelist, or a preacher, or a pastor? <clears throat> no, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, Ephesians 4 tells us that these ministries are supposed to be building up the body so that the body can do the work of the ministry. And so wherever you are, fundamentally, you should be able to have a sense of calling where you are. Because for, first and foremost, you're called to be in Christ. And being called to be in Christ and knowing that you are created by God and for God. And all that you do is toward his glory, like it says in Colossians 3, whatever you put your hand to, do it to the glory of the Lord. And so... I feel like it's helpful for us to kind of take a trip back in time to when people had more of a, a sense of calling in life versus career. And so people didn't used to speak so much about their, their careers, but they spoke more about their calling. They didn't use the word calling, though. They used the word vocation. Vocation. Now, you know, MVQs. National vocational qualifications. The phrase is still used in certain senses, but it's not commonly used or understood. Vocation basically means calling. It's that sense of your life's work, your mission, your purpose. So many, I used to work in careers. So many people in, into their late years. There was a time when I, I, I ran, um, what do they call it? Executive job club. And so you're dealing with mature people and over 40s, well into their, some of them almost at retirement age, sitting down saying, you know what, I don't know what it's all about. I don't even really know what my purpose is. I've done all this stuff and I look back at it and I'm just like, what for? I remember one guy sitting down with him and he was just like, you know what, I, I've given my life to a career and to, to work and even been successful and it's, it was never what I wanted to do. And in his mid-50s, he was at that point where it's like, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm having a change of career. I'm going to do that which I feel like I'm here for. And that was him trying to pursue his kind of life's mission, his, his sense of calling. And so calling isn't just a religious thing where it's only outworked and fulfilled in the context of the church. God has called you to be his ambassador, his agent, wherever you are, to be salt and light. 
and to do so for his glory. It doesn't matter what skills you have. It doesn't matter what experience you have. You're able to take that and use it for the glory of God. Now, obviously, there are conditions to that. So, you know, if you're good with maths, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to run a betting shop. <clears throat> because, you know, gambling, is a, it, it can be a problem for people. And they're trying to regulate it. And, you know, when the, when the joy, when the fun stops, then you stop. Yeah. Are you going to be a, a, a pub landlord doing happy hour on spirits? Knowing the issue. Like, there are going to be certain things that conflict with our identity and who we are as Christians. And so we kind of have to think about how do we negotiate this? Am I making a legalistic statement? No, no Christian should ever work in a betting shop or a casino. No Christian should ever work in a pub. Like, no. But all I'm saying is that there are going to be certain times when as individuals, as we prayerfully reason with the Lord, are mindful of his word, seeking counsel, as we're being sensitive to his spirit, realize that actually some things are just not going to be in accordance with the person of Christ. And it's not just the obvious things. Oh, I once sold drugs. Now I'm a Christian. I'm going to stop selling drugs. Yeah, I mean, obviously. <laughs> Although it's not so obvious for some. But, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's not so obvious for some. People just never had no Christian experience, no Christian exposure, no experience to God, exposure to God. And I remember, Pastor Rob will remember this. There was a youth in school that we was talking to. One day he sat down and he said, boy, you know what? I give thanks to God, you know, because I had just burgled this house and the police were coming. And I just had to sit down when I got home because I escaped them and give thanks to God how he helped me to get away. <laughs> As he sat there with... Rear nephew in one hand and a spliff in the other, giving thanks. <laughs> and he didn't see the contradiction in that picture. <laughs> so some people, it's not so obvious. But as we mature in Christ, you know, the Lord will put his finger on those things and show us, look, you know what? There are certain things that we need to step away from and use our abilities, our gifting, our skills in other ways that will be more glorifying to him and not conducive to um, facilitating sin. The reality is that we're in this world, but we're not of it. We're in this world, we're not of it. And so we're going to interact with the world and we're called to interact with the world. Christianity suffered a severe setback in many ways through the monastic movement when people chose to become monks and try and separate themselves from this world and as take themselves out of the world. That's not what God's called us to do. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. <clears throat> now, on a practical level, 
you might feel, how does that work? And I just want to, I'm not going to say much about time. I'm just going to make a couple of statements and we're finished. Fundamentally, it's what we do with our time. Life is made up of a series of moments that in this world have a finite end. There's going to come an end. And this was one of the underlying issues in the parable. There is going to come an end. And so Jesus starts the parable. If you look at it from verse 13, you can find it. And in the first part of the chapter, he is talking about the five wise and the five foolish virgins. And this, this, that parable in itself is a whole other story, which has been, you know, it needs to be told because the par- that parable has been battered and abused so many times in so many ways. But fundamentally, Jesus was speaking to Jewish people who had the history of Moses and the law and the prophets. They had relationship with God. And, you know, Israel in times past was called the wife of God. And so there was a sense in which they would have understood that as relating to them as Jews. And the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins consist of those amongst the Jews who were foolish in that they didn't receive the oil of God's spirit through faith in Christ. And the five wise were the ones who did and are representative of all people who have put their faith in Christ and received the oil of the Spirit. And so they've got lamps or lanterns, and these lanterns are fueled by oil, and some had oil and some didn't have, because the the ones that didn't have their oil ran out. Speaking of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant had run its course, fulfilled its purpose, but there was new oil to be received. The wise ones had got that new oil, representative of faith in Christ, the oil of the Spirit. The foolish ones didn't. They were still trying to rely on what they once had. And so the cry comes, here's the bridegroom, Jesus. He's coming back. There's an end. Where's your oil? We don't have none. Let's have some of yours. Nobody can give you their oil. You need to go to the master to get the oil. You can't get it from no one else. No one can, have, no one can be saved on the basis of someone else's testimony. Well, my mom, she was a wonderful Christian. That don't help you. And so then it ends. Watch therefore, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Time. There's an end coming. The master gave the talents and went away to come back and call accounts. Time. At the end of the chapter, we see the conclusion of the matter. When the Son of Man, verse 31, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Then look what he says. Then he asks the people, what did you do? Like, when I was in prison, where was you? When I was hungry, where was you? And... They were like, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When was you like? And this, 
Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? I mean, if we saw you, we would have done it, even though we passed everybody else. Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. And so, boom, there's this sense of, we don't have all, all time to play with. I mean, on a personal level, our lives are finite. We can go at any time. We take life for granted. We take tomorrow for granted. And yet, you could live for 100 years more. Mortality rates are, are, are extending. People are living longer. Jesus is going to come back at some point. What is going to be our response? What did you do with the life that I gave you? In all that time that you had, each of those moments, what did you do? I end with this encouragement. Anybody recognize these individuals? All of y'all look alike. Um, so this is what were known as the Cambridge Seven. And these were gentlemen from the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, the most notable of whom was this guy, C.T. Studd. And they were known as the Cambridge Seven because um, all of them, actually bar one, but it's not commonly known, all of them bar one were graduates of Cambridge University. So they were high-flying individuals. They were amongst the nation's elite. And furthermore, not only was C.T. Studd uh, a graduate of Cambridge University with high honors, but he was also in the England cricket team. And he was a prolific cricketer, part of the team that, gave it to the Aussies back in them times. And yet, these guys gave up everything. All of their uh, achievements, all of their accolades, all of their social status, all of their money, they gave it all up in order to become missionaries with Hudson Taylor as part of the China Inland Mission. Hence their appearance contextualizing themselves to give the gospel opportunity. And this is what C.T. Studd said. I know that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. And so he given up everything. Career, popularity, notoriety, money, status, giving it all up for the world that is to come. This is what we're called to. And that doesn't mean giving everything up in terms of walking away and becoming a missionary. I heard an interesting stat. Somebody said 2% of missionaries are black, like globally. I can't verify or qualify that, but I found it interesting. 2% only. 
But wherever you are, recognizing that actually this is not who I am, but I am God's, and I am here for him and his purpose, and not just to gain and benefit from or this environment that I'm in. And so we can all live with that attitude. Live with that sense of, I'm just here, I'm just passing through. Time is finite. Jesus is coming back. And so I'm going to make this count for eternity. Um, let's stand. I'm going to encourage the team to come back. What on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? When you break down your 168 hours of week and you take away the time that you sleep and the time that you eat and even time for recreation and you think about the rest of your week, how does that factor Towards, uh, towards an eternal end. Sometimes just being a blessing to other people is sufficient. Sometimes knowing that what we do in some way conveys the, the goodness of God, the common grace that resonates with the sun shining on the good and the, the, the just and the unjust and the rain falling on the righteous and the unrighteous and there's a sense in which Everybody experiences the benefit and blessing of God, even in simple ways. We're called to play our part in conveying that grace. And yet, are there ways that you can be more directly contributing to the kingdom of God? I would say that there are. Absolutely and most definitely. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.